All right, if you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to take it and turn with us to Acts chapter 21. Uh, We are uh, finishing Paul's third missionary journey today, and then the end of the the book of Acts uh, chronicles him going to being in prison. We'll be there next week as we finish chapter 21, and then he, of course, writes many of the New Testament books from prison, and he's taken to Rome. There's a couple um, stops along the way, and then he is executed at the, uh, from Nero's, and then the book of Acts ends. And Lord willing, we will finish up through that uh, around Thanksgiving time, and then after that we're going to have a Christmas uh, Advent series, uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to that. Uh, Lord willing, what we're planning on is kind of a uh, he's not supposed to be here, she's not supposed to be here series on uh, some shady characters, some of the bad boys and girls in Jesus' family tree. And just that if Jesus is, wants folks like that in his family tree, the gospel, he wants us in his family now, and the gospel is extended to all in that way. So Acts 21. Entitling this message, Facing Danger for the Sake of the Name. We'll read the, read the text and we'll make some comments on it and applications to us. Acts chapter 21. This is God's word. And when he had parted from them and set sail, they came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. And when he had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And from there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when our days were ended... We departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And when we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him unto the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. And bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would lift these truths from the pages here. Apply it to our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Spirit of God, we need you now. Lord, I pray for one that may not know Christ. I pray for those that may have an idol of safety. And I pray that you would use this to grow us all, that we would be willing to um, face danger for the sake of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this message is going to be a little bit different approach than what we normally do. And often we give like the big idea up front and then kind of give some supporting points behind that. I'm really going to do the opposite today. So it's kind of more of a inductive 
idea. Kind of an old Puritan outline. They would say we'd give the doctrine and then the, ap- then the interpretation and then the application. We're going to do that a little bit today. So the text kind of naturally divides itself with three, four different ideas. And we're, so we're going to do that. So the first thing we kind of see is a travel itinerary, itinerary. And then we see this kind of a, 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 an apparent conflict in the passage of seems like the Holy Spirit's telling one group of people one thing and a different group of people another. And then there's this idea of a little rabbit trail we're going to chase, um, and we're going to chase women prophets a little bit there. There was that comment about uh, Philip's un- unmarried daughters that prophesied, and then we'll come to the point and the big idea of the passage together with us. And so Paul is bound for Jerusalem. He's just left Miletus, and that's where they leave them. We've had that talk with where he has charged the Ephesian elders there at Miletus, and he's talked to them about, we just left off last time we were together, about the, 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 the value of the church that he's purchased with his own blood. And because of that, he is bound, and the text even told us early in verse 20 of chapter, in chapter 20, that he was of the Holy Spirit persuaded to go to Jerusalem. So he is a man on a mission, and this is very much the theme. So we're going to see the events that lead to that journey to Jerusalem. So if you've ever been on a trip, and there's a lot of events that go along that, that's really what we're seeing. And, but he's a determined man. And so we want to see the importance of being determined Christians. And, um, and that a Christian with determination, a church with determination, is not going to give in to pressure and emotional appeals. Even those appeals from close friends and family. We're going to be determined. So the first four verses kind of set, read almost like a travel log. If you went on a trip, maybe on a cruise or a tour, and you kind of, well, we went here, and then we went here, and then here we stayed here, and we had breakfast there, and then we met these people, and we went and visited them there, and then we got on the boat again and, and went back to the next port and, you know, checked our passports. And it kind of reads that way. They went from here to here to there. And so there's some neat things to mention there. So it's from, they go from Miletus to Kos. His itinerary reads there. <clears throat> Kos, interesting thing there, kind of side note, uh, this is a place that where there's a very prestigious medical school in the ancient world. It was founded by a fellow named Hippocrates. Anyone know something we have today that might be named after Hippocrates? The Hippocratic Oath. Yes, and so that's at Kos there. Then to Rhodes and Patera, this is a, to go across the Mediterranean. These are probably little uh, jumping ships, and then to get on a larger ship that would go across the Mediterranean to Phoenicia and then to Syria. And then at Tyre, Paul receives the first of two warnings about his trip from the people there to not go to Jerusalem. And all these things we see him um, uh, you see, even jumping down uh, he, he, to ch- verse 14, that they, once they get to Caesarea, they stay in the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple. Now, that's just a really nice way of saying this guy had been a disciple for a long time. It's, it's a nice way of saying the senior saint um, there that he was. Now, but, but what I want to point out here is this highlights, why would they take the time to give all these things up? Um, and it really points out how important it was to say hello and goodbye as believers. That the importance of Christian fellowships and the priority of relationships. And this is really a huge part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you have the mentality that following Jesus is, you know, having personal devotions, then occasionally coming on a Sunday morning to a building where you're going to hear a lecture or based on the Bible, and you kind of checked your your ticket there, and that was it. Um, I, I don't really think you've grasped what it means to be baptized into the body of Christ. They, these are brothers and sisters, and we are together. And, and, it, and, and we, we symbolize that in the ordinances. When one's baptized, bat, one becomes part of the many. You're part of the body. And then when we celebrate the Lord's table, the many have union in one. And then we're one bread of one Lord and one cup. I mean, we're, we're together in communion, that we are together. And so this is just a neat thing that you see this. Um, so in Tyre, he's only there for seven days, one week. But when he leaves, it says that they all, with their wives and children, go outside the city down to the beach and pray to say farewell. 
And I'm sure there's a huge mix of emotions because Paul's a human just like anyone else. There's these highs and lows. And you ever been there? You're saying your family's going on a trip or maybe a, uh, someone's deploying in military service or something like this. And, or you maybe you're at an airport and you see people saying goodbye or hello and they haven't seen each other for a long time or the greetings at the doors when maybe grandkids come in town from, not their parents, but the grandkids come in town from, for after being gone for a while. Those hellos and goodbyes are so precious. And we see that repeated here in Paul's journeys, highlighting for us how important this is. I mean, this is an awesome beach prayer meeting here that this church has. I mean, I, I'm sure the kids, uh, if we kind of use our imaginations a little bit, I'm sure the kids that were there never forgot that. And, and I just want to, um, and then the house of Mason there in verse 14, an early disciple, opened his house to them. How awesome it is that he followed Christ for such a long time and he's still serving Christ even in his latter years. He's offering Christian fellowship and hospitality. So I ask, do you open your home and your heart for hospitality and being around God's people? You never know when a goodbye is going to be the last time you get to say goodbye. And I I was thinking about this this week with uh, the Kings when they were with us this summer. Here we have a choice servant of God, one of our missionaries. And I didn't think this would be the last time we'd see them. It's so important to, you never know, to make sure that those goodbyes and hellos, we take time for them. And so uh, we see that now. But then in their journeys, he comes back to Caesarea. Now, we were back over in uh, Israel area there, in the Palestine area, um, in the, the Holy Land as we are today, the land of the Bible. And he meets a fellow that we've seen before in the book of Acts named Philip. Excuse me. Now, and this is where um, I want to chase a rabbit for a few moments here. Because I think it's important because you get to this and you're like, well, what's he going to say about that? Well, is he going to say anything about that? And so if you don't say anything about it, you're kind of skipping over it. And then, you know, you kind of not want to say it. But if you say about it, then you're talking about, you know, women preachers. And what are you going to do? So I figure the worst thing could happen. You get upset about something. So that's the worst thing that can happen. Okay. So Philip's home. Now, the last time we saw Philip was in chapter 8. Uh, we saw him in chapter 6. He was one of the seven. He was one of the first deacons. So these deacons, were there. the initial part of their calling was to make sure that those physical needs and those administrative needs in the church of the Hellenist Jews and to keep that unity there. But their ministry also extended to other things. So Philip here is an evangelist. We saw him preaching up in... Um, uh, in, in, in where he's having lots of people. And then he's called away of the Holy Spirit to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. And then they depart there in chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8 of Acts, and we see him going to Caesarea. And then 20 years pass, and we see him here again in chapter 21. And doesn't tell us what he's been doing. He's still called an evangelist. He's probably been preaching the gospel. But he has four daughters that are unmarried. And so let's use our... Um, little um, imagination of a guy who has four unmarried grown daughters that are serving God in ministry. Now, I like to, I usually think and imagine people's houses by what songs they might be playing around their house. And I like a lot of classic country. So I imagine walking up to Philip's house and hearing Red Savine playing Daddy's Girl um from out the window you know the daddy's girl song by the way i had a parenting win this past week um we have one of those alexa you know where you pay the government to listen to you in your in your kitchen um uh, we have one of those in our kitchen and maddie our five-year-old comes down uh, for breakfast and she says alexa play johnny cash and i thought that's my girl right there (laughs) that i we that we we we, parenting win and so um, so, oh, wow, that's hilarious. Okay, very good. Um, so anyway, so there is, so this goes on. So, um, from his, now, so one of the things we know from outside the Bible is that, uh, so you've probably heard of Eusebius and Papias. They're these, uh, historians in the early church. Both of them note that the daughters of Philip were beneficial to them, uh, in learning some of the, from the early days of the church, because evidently, well, one of these 
daughters, at least one of these daughters of Philip, lived into her 90s. And was, and of course, someone who's been around that long in the first early part of the church going on in centuries would be of a good help to someone telling the stories uh, and writing down the, or his, the story of our big family of the church. And so, but it does say, and here's the point that, I, here's the part that I want to make, is it says that they were prophets, they prophesied. So women prophets. Mm. Well, here's the thing that we, the, um, that we want to point out. In both Testaments, kind of back up, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a prophet was someone who received a message from God, and they were responsible to proclaim that message to God's people. And so in most cases, in the Old Testament and the New, those were men, but not always. So we'll give a few examples from the Old Testament and, then a, and two from the New. So in the Old Testament, we have these female prophetesses. Miriam in Exodus 15, Deborah in Judges 4, verse 4, um, Huldah in 2 Kings 22, and then Isaiah's wife in Isaiah chapter 8. And then in the New Testament, we have two examples. We have Anna in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, and then we have here the daughters of Philip in Acts 21. So I want to point this out. For a woman to prophesy would not have been a strange thing in the early church. It would not have been a strange thing. Because, in fact, Peter, at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when he says this is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that the gifts of the Spirit would be given out. It does not say that certain gifts would only be given to men and certain gifts would only be given to women. That the, the, the gifts that they're in the church, there's not Jew, Gentile, male, female, uh, Greek, or barbarian. We're all one in Christ. We, the ground, we are all equal. We're of equal standing. We are joint heirs with Christ. Um, there is a, um, a, 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 an um, egalitarianness there, as much as I hate to use that word. Okay. Um, now, so what does that do with the rest of the Bible? Does that mean, as some people would point out from this passage, that Paul is just a hopelessly, he is just hopelessly contradictory on, his, on the matter of women's roles in the church, as some would point out. Is Paul being contradictory there? Because he did say in other places, like in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 2 Timothy, that women were not to speak authoritatively in the church. And that the, the qualifications for those leaders in the church, that they were to be husbands of one wife. There would be one woman, men. So it's hard for a woman to be a husband of one wife. And so, so, so is, is Paul contradicting himself? No, I don't think so. I think what he is saying is women can have the gift of prophecy, but they are not to have the office of elder or pastor. Um, however, in 1 Corinthians 11, it assumes that women did pray and prophesy in the church but not in an authoritative, instructive way, something that we would know as preaching. At least not to when the whole church with the men and all are gathered there. So there, we, have, we had two women prophesying at our church this morning. They were playing instruments and singing. And we see other places in, that, that playing instruments, singing, reading scripture, Apparently, in the New Testament, women were allowed to pray and minister musically and so on, but they were not allowed to speak authoritatively or be ordained for what we would consider as preaching. Now, you Baptist fundies, you're always bringing this stuff up, right? And you act like this is like the most important thing in the world. Well, let me just go on record as saying this, that the issue of women's roles in the church is not a gospel issue. There are wonderful sisters in Christ that minister for God. That I'm going to be in heaven with them and minister alongside them at, at, in, during the millennium. I mean, or that, that this, is a, this is not a gospel issue. It is not as important as the gospel or as the issue of the authority of the Bible. But it does prove a good test case for whether you will be faithful to what the Bible actually says. And so if you take the Bible serious enough to actually believe what it says, um, you won't ignore clear statements in the Bible about limitations on women from certain offices in the church. 
And so it is a test case. And those that would ignore clear statements in Scripture are ignoring those and revealing who their real master is. And so there's that. So we'll, we'll, we'll shoot that rabbit and move back to the text. But so here's where I want to go. So Paul's here. He's taking these trips. He's talking and he has two different warnings. And this is where an apparent conflict comes up of between what is God's will and how does the Holy Spirit speak? Because there's, there's one warning where the saints come. And I want you to note what the Bible says, that they come to him through the Spirit, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. But he's just said back in chapter 20 that by the leading of the Spirit, he was going to Jerusalem. So, which one is right? And then we have a second warning from this guy named, or this prophet named Agabus. And he gives this, uh, prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were often dramatic. And this is where I think there's a little bit of a level for the use of drama uh, for, for things like this. Because remember some of the Old Testament prophets, you know, axe heads floating and one of them, you know, who they would marry and disrobing themselves or not cutting thing, you know, I mean, a lot of these things, you see this, in, so Agabus does this really dramatic thing, he comes to Paul, and he takes Paul, and he takes Paul's belt, like this, and he takes Paul's belt off, and he binds his hand, and binds his feet, and he says, whoever has this belt is going to be bound in Jerusalem, and so he does that, and this is really dramatic thing, basically saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to have this happening, you're going to be imprisoned, so Paul has these two warnings, And I want you to note that the church, Luke, who's the human author here, he even says, after Agabus gives this warning, he says, we, including himself. So Luke here is we included saying, ah, Paul, you better not do that. Uh, We're going to outvote you on this one. Um, So, interesting, Luke is a good team player. Because even though he warns him, Luke's still part of the party that goes with him uh, to Jerusalem. I I love that. Um, So I don't think we should minimize the instruction given through the Holy Spirit by these disciples. So then we have to ask the question, did Paul make a wrong decision in continuing to Jerusalem? And I'm going to just say, I don't think so. I think he had a really good reason because a few things. One, his motives are spiritual and mature. It's not like he's, you know, a new believer that hasn't been around, didn't know what he was coming into. Secondly, because he receives no rebuke in the Bible for going ahead to Jerusalem. And then when he goes to Jerusalem and he is eventually put in prison, it does not limit his ministry. In fact, it expands his ministry because we know from prison he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. So I believe that the harmony of this apparent conflict is that Paul was being formally warned about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, not to keep him away from Jerusalem, but to make him firm in his resolve in going to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Not to keep him away, but just so you know, hey, we're warning you, it's not going to be all, you know, sunshine and rainbows when you get there. It's not going to be all easy street. Um, He knew the dangers and was convinced that it was God's purpose for him to go. So there's a few things for us to apply this, especially when it comes in making decisions and discerning God's will for you and others. One is this. Don't be super quick to assume that you know God's will for someone else. Someone comes and asks you advice. Don't be so quick to assume you know God's will for them. Because you know what, if I was being honest and I was like on a pastoral team with, with Paul and he's like, hey, this guy with, took my belt and told me I'm going to be put in prison when I get to Jerusalem. What do you think I ought to do? You know what I'd probably said? Hey, there's a lot of people here to reach, you know. But I can't say I know God's will for Paul. I can't say I know God. I, we know his, his general will and what he's told, you know. Like we know those things about God's will. You know, so if someone comes to me and says, hey, I think I think God's calling me to be a missionary. 
I could say, hey, you know what, that, that's probably awesome. But I, from the Bible, how about we start with being faithful to church and growing and doing what we're doing here, and let's see where God leads that. Uh, but, but I can't say, hey, you're not even coming to church regularly. How do you say you're going to be called to be a missionary? No, no, I can say, hey, let, let, you know, that might be true. But let, let, let's start, where, where can we start that process of you being on the mission field and being a faithful missionary? Well, I, I, I don't know, you know. Um, I know there are certain things you don't have to pray about. You don't have to pray about whether it's God's will for you to divorce your wife or not. How do you know uh, God's will if you're supposed to, um, who, you're, who you're supposed to be married to if you're married? Their name's already written on the marriage certificate. You know that's God's will. Nothing to pray about. You know, you know it's God's will for you to be with God's people. You know it's God's will to not lie. You know it's God. You know it's God's. I mean, there's certain things you know are God's will. Uh, there are some things we don't know. Am I supposed to go here or here or do this or that or, or or whatnot? There are some things. So don't assume that we know God's will for everyone. Though well-meaning, they were trying to um, uh, make God's will confirm to their preconceptions, and we're like that too. We have preconceptions. This is a trend in church. It's a trend in all of us. It's in my own flesh that, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Well, doesn't God want me to be safe? Doesn't God want me to not suffer pain? I mean, doesn't that make sense? So it couldn't be God's will for you to go to Jerusalem where you're going to suffer imprisonment. That can't be God's will because we're forming God's will to our preconceptions. You know, we're very self-interested. In fact, this one person, one author wrote that it's no accident that at the present time, in our day, the dominant trend in psychoanalysis is the rediscovery of narcissism. Society is marked by self-interest and self-egocentrism and increasingly reduces all relationships to the question, what am I getting out of it? It's the selfie mindset um, that everything is about me how I feel, uh, and avoiding anxiety or stress or people that are negative or all these things, but it's all about how I feel. Um, we, we shouldn't let that be, let our preconceptions force that of God's will. We also shouldn't make our understanding of God's guidance conditional upon our own happiness or sense of completeness or lack of stress or lack of tension or something like that. We also learn from this that, that we need to have a focus that's more vertical than horizontal. Some of the folks in the church probably were more thinking more horizontal, like, hey, I'm thinking about your physical welfare here, not thinking of the eternal. What if Paul had not gone back to Jerusalem? Remember he was taking that gift from all the churches, the Gentile churches that they'd been collecting? He took it back for those that were the poor there in Jerusalem, and it brought mending between the Jewish church and the Gentile church. Mending? What if that hadn't happened? Would Christianity even look like it looks today? Um, what if he'd listened to them? You think, well, this is a little deal. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, kind of like Eric Little in the 20s in the Olympics, you know, the chariots of fire um, uh, that's based upon. What if, hey, it's just one Sunday. What's the big deal? I mean, you got, I mean, it's the Olympics for goodness sake. Come on, you know? But he was thinking something. Because do you know any of the other gold medalists from the t- 1920s? But you know to Eric Little, right? God had bigger plans, right? Now, I'm sure somebody else would know the others and not that because they're really into that, particularly if they're... But, but, but you get the point. Now, so there are certain counsels to help us discern God's will. We have the counsel of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, our own conscience, and others. But what others say is not the only component to helping us make decisions. Um, if I listen to the council, uh, if I look and listen to the what, what's the Hebrew say the uh, the the the, um, the council the, the you know all the all the the cloud of witnesses, if I got in my van and we hit Route 50 and we're heading towards Emily Drive, and I say, what's everybody feel like eating? I know that the great cloud of witnesses from the back seat, Monday through Saturday, are going to say Chick Fil A. On Sunday, they're going to say McDonald's because that's Sunday Chick-fil-A. And I know that there's, that, and I know there's another lady that sits right to the right of me that's always going to involve some type of like black and white, Stonewall, or Starbucks is going to be included. 
Okay, so, but we don't always listen to the great cloud of witnesses because sometimes you're like, you know what? We don't have money to go out to eat. We're going to go home and heat up what was left in the fridge. We're going to, you know, there's this there. That's much healthier. Or we don't have time for that because we just got out and you guys need to get to bed. So we don't have time to go to Chick-fil-A or whatever that might be. So, so it's one. But then there's other times it's like, hey, what do you guys feel like? And we're like, we're really going to listen to this, ca- this council here. And so there's some certain things there and how you give us wisdom there. The Bible's balanced um, in discerning god's will so seek good advisors but be discerning in that realize that god might not want what you want and so as the puritan richard baxter would pray lord what thou wilt where thou wilt and when thou wilt to just pray that way and as we would sing i surrender all all to jesus i surrender or we'd say lord i'll go where you want me to go i'll be what you want me to be and there's a balance here of safety and then surrender. And I think the Oswald Chambers in uh, that famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, nails it in this quote. And I've got a quote here that you, I wanted to skip over there, this Chambers quote. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. So we shouldn't be seeking suffering. We should seek God's will. And if that involves suffering, so be it. So another thing he said, he says, when God plants his saints in the most useless places, we say, I should be here because I am so useful. Jesus never estimated his life by the standard of greatest use. God puts his people where they will glorify him. And we are not capable of judging where that is. One of the, I used to think, hey, I want to serve God or God... Where, where could I be the most useful to God, right? We might think that way. And after our study through Acts stuff kind of changed my mind about that. Philip's a great example. Thousands, hundreds of people preaching to. God says, there's one guy in the desert. Go talk to him. Does that seem like the most useful and prudent use of your time? No, but that's what God wanted. And um, another thing with, with Philip, you say, well, was Philip successful then? Well, we don't hear about him like having droves of converts right he has four unmarried daughters he can't even marry them off they're just sitting around the house listening to red savine all the time (laughs) i heard this from someone else what if the greatest accomplishment that you have in life is not in something you do but in someone you raise what if the greatest accomplishment you have in life is not something you do but in someone you raise if that's all, he was a successful man. He had four daughters that served God, that were dedicated to God. That was success. And so, sometimes those, um, um, sometimes following God uh, in, in involves going against those that would counsel us otherwise. I mean, Luke's, Luke was among these friends in this, the church here saying, don't go. But Paul still went. He, he still had conviction and purpose that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. I mean, um, I mean, he had to make a delivery. He had to make a delivery of the offering. I mean, he, he had an accountability there. Maybe he wanted to be there for the crowds. And he's, um, he, he, this physical need that's coming up. I mean, this is all coming up here. So he does, so Paul does kind of a risk analysis. You know, you sit down and you're doing a risk analysis about something. Maybe you sit down with a financial planner and what's your risk uh, you know, threshold here on this. Um, he does a risk analysis determining whether he should go to Jerusalem or not. And he decides and he determines that him following the Holy Spirit to deliver the offering to Jerusalem is more important than his own safety. And Paul's willingness to continue to Jerusalem despite the imminent dangers brings us to the main point of the message today. This is where we see this. And so this is where I'm going to make the point this, that we, and all these words are important, if we're going to fulfill Christ's mission for us, we must be willing to face danger if necessary. If we're going to fulfill Christ's commission for us, for the church, We must be willing to face danger if necessary. Notice I said you need to be willing to. I think you need to like run after it. You need to be willing to face opposition for the sake of the name. Willing to face danger for the sake of the name. 
So Paul knew there would be hardship, but he knew that that's where God wanted him to go. But his desire to follow God was greater than his, follow, his desire to avoid hardship. Is your desire to follow God greater than your desire to avoid hardship? Now, I get, none of us enjoy pain. None of us enjoy hard things. None of us enjoy the process of getting in shape or losing weight or anything or getting an education or finishing a job. Or, but none of us enjoys that process when you're getting started with it. But if we really want to follow God's will, we have to come to grips with this reality. He comes to this, and, and what's awesome about this is Paul is determined. He's flinty-faced. I'm going to do this. It's more important than my own safety. And the other Christians here, at the end we see in verse 14, they all say the same thing. Um, and he says, they say this in verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. Now you can take that as a couple different ways. One might be to say, all right, um, it's your neck, buddy, you know, but they're not really saying that because some of them go with him. It's one way of saying, hey, we believe that God's in this with you, Paul. We've changed our opinion. Or they might be meaning by saying, let the will of the Lord be done by just saying, whatever happens to Paul, God will accomplish his will. And I think that there's probably a mix of both. Because that is a theme throughout Acts, that no matter what the challenges and setbacks, God is guiding the events toward his saving purposes so let's pray like baxter did lord what thou wilt where thou wilt when thou when thou wilt so if we're going to fulfill christ's mission we must be willing to face danger if necessary you know safety and security can kind of become an idol to us especially in our culture James talks about this. He says, you know, go to you that say today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and buy and sell and get gain that you ought to say if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. And what James is doing, he's not rebuking them for making plans he, or, or their desire to make profit. He rebukes them for this worldly confidence of trying to pursue their goals on their own. That he's re- attempting to remind us that security apart from God is only an illusion. It's a myth. To have security apart from God is an illusion. We might try to find security in having a lot of money, financial security, and we might base most of our decisions upon that, even when it's opposed to God's moral will. Um, or we might say, well, how much insurance do I need? You know, I gotta make, and, and people argue. I mean, they have, we see it in politics and everything. I mean, insurance is a huge deal. And, and, and there's a, a level of it that's so important for us to have health care. But there's also part of this, I have to be insured of my own safety and my own welfare. And the part of that, this idea of it creeping in as an idol. And we have all, I mean, I mean, it's just hilarious, all the different, I love insurance advertising. I mean, who doesn't want to have, um, to be in a better state with State Farm or have some imaginary person holding an umbrella for you, like travelers everywhere you go? Or, you know, I mean, who doesn't want to be happier than a slinky on an escalator? You know, or a bodybuilder directing traffic or Christopher Columbus with speedboats. You know, and, and how cool is a little gecko? I mean, that can just do everything, you know? Um, and I love how Erie even does, you know, uh, they give you funny advertising, we give you great insurance, you know? I mean, it's just, you know, there's just so, I mean, don't get me wrong. We need to be good stewards. God doesn't reward sloth or foolishness. But don't find your security in it. Real security in this way, is an illusion. There is a myth of safety, as John Piper says. So no matter how much you have, no matter how much insurance you have, it's ultimately unreliable. Because, I mean, you can have the best security system on the outside, but it can't stop your heart from having an attack inside. I mean, there's, there, in the end, we need to respond as, you know, as James said, if the Lord will. Lord, your will. We're going to submit to your will. And the Bible says safety's prepared. The, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety's of the Lord. We need to make sure your horse is prepared against the day of battle. You know, so lock your doors, have your guns, bolt the door, but know that safety's of the Lord. And so safety can become an idol, just like lots of idols. Just like the idols in Ephesus and Athens, they demand sacrifice. They give us an illusion of happiness and security, but they're really empty. 
Because if you if you're if you're God, if you if your safety and security becomes an idol to you, you will have to make sacrifices for it. You will not serve God or give to God or do because of safety and security. Um, John Piper said it this way. Um, both the Bible and experience teach us that safety is a myth. You can't put enough padlocks on your door and enough bars on your window to keep a heart attack from happening. There's no guarantee that everybody is going to live another breath. In terms of absolute security, all of our efforts that we make to keep ourselves safe are ultimately an illusion. And so he concludes that risk is right, that God has that for us. You know, um, a couple weeks ago, it was with our teachers at a convention uh, for the West Virginia Christian School Teachers, and there was a breakout session on Generation Z. And Generation Z is the folks born between 1995 and 2015. And uh, do we have any Zers up here? I think they're all downstairs. I was interested in this because my kids are Generation Z. And there's the Gen X, and then there's the Y, the Millennials. And we've beaten up on the Millennials long enough. Now we can beat up on the next generation behind them. And that's the Gen Zers, right? And, uh, um, and so... So, 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 so there was a, some really good things, and, and I'm not one of those guys that likes, oh, the millennials, and yeah, you know, and just kind of be, you know, they don't know how to work, you know, you know, you know, while they're teaching you how to use your phone, you know, and, and, and you know, I don't want because there's a lot of good things, like, so for Gen Z, there's a positive future, I believe, you know, that they are very down to earth, they're more humble, they're less distracted, they're very determined, um, but uh, there's some things, some, some of the things that I want to share that he, that he shared in that seminar was that they're twice as likely as adults to verbally say they're atheists. They um, abhor anxiety, and you'll hear all, and you see this in their parents, like anxiety. You see that word, buzzword all the time about avoiding anxiety and anxious situations. Valuing safety is a key thing. These are the folks that they've grown up in a post 9-11 world. I mean, that, the, the thought that anywhere you go, any day, I mean, you think of every school shooting you see all the time. They've grown up in this world. Safety is so important to them. You know, you never know one day to the other what might happen. I mean, none of us would have thought that, oh, I'm going to this place and someone might fly a plane in the side of the building. You know, they've grown up in a world like that. So we can complain about them all we want, but that's the reality of the world they live in. I mean, I, I, um, when I was little, my parents lived in, in Laurel Valley out towards West Milford. I remember as like a kindergarten and first grader getting dropped off at the bus a half mile from the house, walking home, walking in without my parents there, and then my grandpa showed up like a half hour later. I would never think of doing that with my kids. I mean, you know, where, where Jamie and I live, I know people that literally will drive down the meet t- and park a half hour before the bus gets off, and, and you can see their house from where the bus drops them off. I'm like, they can walk. It's like 40 yards. It's not a big deal. And, um, but safety is such a big thing. So there are some bad things parents can do for Gen Zers. We can teach them to dodge responsibility and avoid pain and then complain that they're still living in our basement when they're 30, 35 years old. We can enable them to feel entitled to the perks and, to circum- and try to make shortcuts for all things. Um, we can condition them to escape risk and seeking to guarantee safety. But as the guy who gave the seminar said, he said, you will never do great things for the Lord without risk. You want to start a church? There's risk. You want to go win someone to the Lord? There's risk. You want to go start a Awana program or a children's program or you want to start a small group? or what? There's risk. Every time you talk to someone, you want to try to mend a relationship with a, with, with a brother or sister in Christ? There's risk. You put yourself out there. You know? Um, Hey, well, I'd love to get together and talk to you sometime, and maybe we can bury the hatchet. You, you can wait on them to like, you know, and you, you're putting yourself out there. There's risk involved. All good things have a level of risk to them. So it is most often assumed um, that caution is the course Christians should take. But there are times when God's purposes for believers include danger. I want you to make sure I'm nuancing this. So that I'm not saying we should be. I'm saying we should seek danger. I'm saying we should be willing if God would call us to that. So let me conclude with this, with a few application questions. Are you willing to face danger for the sake of the name? Like, have you ever had to face danger because you're a Christian? Is your desire to please God and follow His will greater than your desire to avoid hardship? 
Are you willing to release your kids to this? Isn't that why God gave them to you in the first place? They're called arrows. Your quiver is full of arrows. You know what arrows are made to do? To shoot out of the quiver. We're giving kids to shoot them out, not to keep them un- under the whole time, to send them out. That we're, We get like 18, 20 years with them, and then we, we're, we're, we're to send them out to do what God might call them to do. So last week we had the Burns with us. And it was awesome to hearing about the different churches starting and how they're working together and how they're having that, that their first kind of T4G Norway conference and how they were, they were doing that. So what do you do when your 16-year-old son comes and says, Mom, that was awesome. I'm going to go to school, and then I want to move to Norway and work with them. I want to do that. Are you cool with that? Are you really cool with that? You know, that, that, well, no, that might be, what if they say, I really want to be involved in what God's doing in the Middle East. I really want to be in what God's doing in Egypt right now where Christians are being persecuted. And I think God's called me to that. Are you going to be like these disciples say, oh, no, God's not called you to that. I know God's will for you. God's will for you is to get a house right down the street from mine and have lots of grandkids and have lots of time off where I can watch them. That's God's will, right? And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying we need to be willing to release them for the sake of the gospel. And can I give you one more reason that we should be willing to face danger for the sake of the name? There's a map I wanted to put up on here that starts in 1318 North 16th Street, Clarksburg, West Virginia. So this one more reason why you should be willing to face danger for the sake of the name is not just one reason. It's actually 7,218 reasons. And what that number is, 7,218, is how many people are within a one-mile radius of this building right now, population. One mile. You can walk one mile. Three thousand six hundred and forty housing units within one mile of this building. And as far as I can tell, there's only a few other evangelical churches, and by that I mean churches that preach the gospel within that circle. And I think if you counted all of them up, you'd have less than a few hundred. So, there is, sometimes we can complain about the neighborhood. Sometimes we can complain about the side of town. Are we willing to face danger for the sake of the name? There's people hurting. They need something. They don't even have pride in their own neighborhood anymore. They need a new creation. They need a new community. And who else offers that ultimately besides the church of Jesus Christ? And so I asked, what if Paul hadn't been willing to face danger for the sake of the name? What if he hadn't gone to, okay, you know what? Things are good right here. Kind of like this little Caribbean Mediterranean spot on the seashore here. You know, Um, we know Paul was single at that point, you know. Philip's got four unmarried daughters. I might just camp right here, right? No, he was willing to follow the Lord for the sake of the name. So um, what would the church be like if we were willing to do this? Paul was a man on mission. So how do we follow this? And man, I don't want to have that determination like Paul. You know why Paul had that determination to go to Jerusalem? Because there was another man on a mission full of determination, who was deterred not to go to Jerusalem because they were going to crucify him. And Christ, the example that Paul's following, is very much a model of facing danger to go to Jerusalem at a Passover where he's going to be brutally beat, put out and crucified to bear all of our sins. And he's the one we follow. He was willing to face danger and hardship for us. And so we should be willing to face danger for the sake of his name. So am I, are you, are we willing to face danger for the sake of the name? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. This is a sobering thought. What's in this passage is 
is, is, is counterintuitive to everything in, in us as Americans, that we, we want safety and we want security. We assume that your will would not involve hardship or unhappiness or stress or anxiety or hard tasks or bad neighborhoods. But Lord, this passage gives us, not like up front, but in Paul's example, a picture that we need to be willing to face danger for the sake of the name. And God, I ask that you would give us hearts like this, that we will be dangers that we would all face this week. Maybe someone that we feel urged to share a gospel tract with, to witness, to mend a relationship with, and there's risk involved in that. Or maybe you're calling some to to, to begin being generous and, and, and having economic discipleship and giving to the Lord, but they're not sure how ends would meet if they do that, that there's risk involved. Lord, there may be some that you may be calling to the mission field. God, I pray that you would help us as brothers and sisters not to discourage or seek to assume we know God's will for someone else. Lord, I pray that if you are calling someone to the mission field from our midst, that you would give them the courage to follow Paul's example in this, to face danger for the sake of the name. Lord, we thank you so much. And Lord, for the example of, of your son who went to Jerusalem to be crucified for us. And so if there's someone here that doesn't know, have a relationship with Christ, Lord, would you work in their hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. And before we say amen, I just want you to take a few moments to pray and maybe make some application here in your own life. If you're not saved, you don't know Christ, I want to invite you right now to maybe look up or come up this way or slip to the back. We'd love to talk to you or maybe afterward talk to you about knowing Christ as your Savior. Let's just all take a couple moments and pray and apply this to our hearts. God, thank you for the example that you told us that that we're blessed as we read at the beginning of this service when we are reviled and persecuted and evil and things falsely said about us for your namesake. And Lord, that you call us to lay up our our treasures in heaven. Lord, help us to value following you and the joy yet to come with you in eternity and in our walks with you as more valuable than any security or myth of safety that this world could give. Lord, would you dismiss us now with your blessings in Jesus' name, amen.